We're going to be in Jeremiah tonight, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, just before I came in here, I saw on my news feed that there was another uh, shooting at Fort Hood today, or this evening, and so I don't know anything about it or the extent of it, but um, I figured we'd start lifting, lifting all of them, all of them, all of those involved and affected up in prayer. Can't believe that some of them are going through it twice, so kind of heavy-hearted for them. So let, let's, uh, let's pray for them and then pray for our time tonight, and we'll get started. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this day. I'm thankful um, that in any and every circumstance, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have purposes that are hard for us to understand, and that you can even take um, wickedness and um, vileness and, and use it for kingdom good and for the good of your people. And so um, with that in mind and with a heavy heart, we, we pray for those at, at Fort Hood right now that are... Um, uh, for many of them, reliving uh, one of the worst things they ever went through. And so I pray that they would, whether it's a shooter or shooters, that they would, um, that they would get them under control quickly and uh, that any of the, the wounded or hurt would be cared for um, quickly and thoroughly. Lord, we pray that you would help those um, uh, of the faith in that circumstance to shine bright and to be helpful, uh, to, to encourage, to be practically helpful. Um, uh, and to fix their eyes on you, and I pray that um, that it would be at least in part um, a reminder that way that um, things are not the way they're supposed to be, and that one day things like that won't happen. Lord, we pray um, for our study tonight in Jeremiah that as we um, as we consider actually what seems to be. Um, very strong and mighty Babylon winning out over God's people, um, that we would see uh, what you have in regard to your plan and our understanding and all that, and even in things we don't understand so that we can learn to trust you um, when things don't even make sense. Uh, we are thankful for Wednesday nights, for a time midweek to stop, to come in here, to be able to open our Bibles, to, to not have to whisper, and to be encouraged by your truth. I pray that this is an edifying time tonight, not a time where we gain knowledge that puffs us up, but a time where we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. As your word says, uh, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our second week in Jeremiah, and um, if, if this is one of your first times here on Wednesday night, we're preaching or teaching through the Bible on Wednesday nights. We started in Genesis about 10 years ago, and... Uh, decade ago, that's a long time, and um, we spent a couple years in Genesis, a couple years in Exodus, and then when we hit Leviticus, we started uh, moving a little more quickly and spending about two, two weeks per book, and so that's landed us tonight in Jeremiah part two. And uh, when we hit Isaiah, we, we moved into a different section of scripture. We moved from our, our section of wisdom literature to uh, the major prophets, and um, they're called the major prophets not because they're more important, but mainly because they're longer books. That, that's all. It's nothing, nothing real deep and profound there. They're just longer books. And so um, we're in Jeremiah tonight. And last week we considered the overwhelming picture of God's justice found in the book of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah is basically God's message to his people of coming justice. And so we talked about the cause of judgment, the promise of judgment, and the priority of judgment 
in regards to how God is going to respond to the way that Israel is and the way of how God is going to respond to the way that Babylon is and the way that God has responded to Egypt and to Assyria and um, really everyone involved by the time we get to the end of it. So um, does anyone remember last week what the cause of judgment was? For 45 chapters, God is being very clear that he is passionately angry with his people. And what was the cause of that? What were his people doing um, that, that was clearly not fitting for the children of God? Or worshiping idols, so idolatry. What else? Human sacrifice, and not just any human. Who in particular were they sacrificing? Their own children. Absolutely wicked and vile. What else? They were unrepentant. They, they were, their hearts were hardened. Um, what, were, what, were their, what was their thought in regard to the word of God? It was offensive to them. They'd grown into such a place to where, just imagine, I mean, y'all are called God's people. Y'all are called the children of God. Those are Christians you're called. Imagine getting to such a point in your life where it didn't bother you to sacrifice your children in the fire of an idol, but God's word was offensive to you. Imagine how different things would have to be. Imagine how remarkably off things would have to be for those things to coincide in the life of one who would be called God's child. What else? What else were they, um, was the cause of the judgment, the judgment that was coming upon them? Their own religious yeah, their own religious leaders prophesied falsely, and they liked it that way. It's, they started speaking whatever they wanted to speak, and they preferred that over the offensiveness of God's word. What else? Yeah, let's make a deal with Egypt, let's make a deal with Assyria, make a deal with Babylon. They were, they were looking to others to be their savior, to be the one who would, would uh, help them out of whatever jam they found themselves in at the time. What else? What was the deal about broken cisterns? They said, you've committed two evils. One was forsaking the well of life, and the other was broken cisterns. What, what does that mean, that they were guilty of the evil of broken cisterns? Yeah, they were represent, yeah the, it was representative of um, the idolatry of actual idols, and then even the idolatry of, we're going to figure out things our own way. And we'll call that way the well of life. So they could make their own idols, worship their own idols. It's kind of like you know, Sinai. Things are terrifying. Let me create a little golden calf that I can exercise control over. And it was just a broken cistern, meaning it doesn't hold water. You have the well of life, which is God's way, which he is giving to you. But what they've done is they've traded that for these broken cisterns that they're trying to hold everything together in. And this is my life, and I can control this. And it, and it was just leaking. It was a mess. It was a, it was a muddy, ugly mess. What kind of whores were they called? Donkey whores, yeah. That was the most awkward part of, of last week's study, where I said, not just any whores, what kind? And like 10 people went, donkey? Like, what? Can we say that? Yeah, that's, that's what he referred to them as. Stubborn, obstinate, turning on God. And in fact, it, he even expounds upon that as, as calling them um, 
or likening them, his own people, his own children, to brazen prostitutes without shame, which is just one of the most heartbreaking images you can ever imagine. I mean, what that does is that draws you into considering, consider a prostitute who takes money the first time and the shame that that prostitute must have felt, how hard that must have been. And he is saying, um, y'all are brazen. You have no shame. You're just doing whatever you want to do to, to set yourselves against me and the love that I have given you. And so, I mean, he uses, in Jeremiah, he uses very, very, very descriptive language and, and uh, details to explain how bad of a deal it is that they have turned from him and followed the way of the world, the way of their own liking. So the causes of judgment were, were, were pretty significant. It wasn't that they had just messed up one day. <laughs> they had set themselves into a way of life that was not remotely indicative of who their God and who their Father was. In regard to the promise of judgment, who would the people, who would God's people ultimately be given over to? Given over to? Yeah, those they were seeking help from. Ultimately, what we found is that they would be given over to those who they fear, which is completely just, you know, ironic and fitting and troubling. It's those who they fear, that, that's who they were going to be given over to, and, and ultimately that's going to be Babylon uh, during, during the time of Jeremiah's prophesying. Um, in light of, of the promise of judgment and how God has promises as to how it's going to play out, but he also has promises as to how he's going to move to, to, to not completely neglect his own children, even though they've completely neglected him. And so this question sort of I tried to reword it a couple times, and it just, I didn't really come up with anything that was real awesome. And so just go with the awkwardness of this question and, and try, to, try to see if you can't kind of feel it out. What is wrong with thinking that God could love us in a way that doesn't have an effect on us? What is wrong with thinking that God could love us in a way that doesn't have an effect on us? Very small. How does it make him small? His love has to be effectual. Do you view him in that manner? That's what I'm getting at here. Because the only hope for Israel and their just obstinate disobedience is that God would love them in an effectual manner. That he would love them so as to change them. That he would love them so as to cleanse them. That he would love them so as to redeem them. And a lot of times I think people have this view of God of, oh man, I'm just so thankful I have the love of God, but don't you dare encroach upon my life and change anything from the way that I want it to be. And so I want us to see here as we're talking about the judgment of God and what it means to walk in holiness, that God's love is supposed to be effectual. And if you don't think it's effectual, it's exactly as Christy just said, you have a very, very small view of God. It's like we, we can't put God in this little compartment over here where we have his love, we have his forgiveness, one day hopefully we'll go to heaven, but do not mess with this thing that I got going on here known as my life. And for some of us, maybe it's our own little kingdom. Our kingdom of self can rage in a thousand different ways. And scriptures like this should help us to stop down and say, do I really hope that God's love is effectual? That it actually changes me? Do I even believe that God could love me in an effectual way? That he could love me in such a manner as to change me more into his likeness and less into my own? Is that an expectation that we have as we consider God's judgment? What was the priority of judgment? Where will it start? With believers, 
with the household of God. What we saw last week was 45 chapters of God explaining how passionately angry he is with his children. And so we found that judgment starts with the household of God. So a question that I have is, how does this shape the way that we're called to persevere? Knowing, as the household of God, judgment will start with us. How does that shape the way that we will persevere in the coming days? Shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised when he comes. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Held more accountable. How else might it help us to persevere? Yeah. Yeah. If we repent, he's faithful, and he's the one who's actually going to help us, and that should certainly give us some encouragement to persevere. When I'm talking about persevering, I'm thinking, I mean, generally persevere is a word that we use to go through something that's difficult, not something that's easy. Usually if it's easy, it's just something we're doing. But if it's something that's difficult, it's something we're persevering through. And something that I think happens is in the time of Jeremiah, when he was prophesying, Israel was really ugly. But they were super concerned about the oppression from Babylon. What's going on over here? God, what about them? God, I thought we were your children. God, Babylon is surrounding us. We're besieged at every side. Where's God? What's God going to do? And they weren't real worried about themselves. And so for us, in our time, there are plenty of sources that we could draw from and things that we could look at to say, um, the wicked seem to be prospering. The faithful seem to not be prospering so much as the wicked seem to be prospering right now. And if we know that the judgment begins in the household of God, how will that affect the way we persevere in that dynamic? What will we focus on? Yeah. Yeah. To stay before him, keep him as God, always be open to him, to look at yourself. It's so easy to see wicked things around us, to see things that, I mean, this shooting at Fort Hood, it's a prime example. It's like, good grief. That happened twice? God, how could that happen twice? And we could become all consumed with that and a thousand other global issues where it looks like wickedness is prospering. And and becoming consumed with that, reading every news article, making sure we're updated on all of our feeds to figure out what's going on and trying to get control over, at least in our minds, and, and neglect what's going on inside. It's easy to see the bad people on the outside and focus all your energy on what the bad people are doing, how the bad people are prospering, and losing sight of you yourself are a bad person, a sinner who needs to be redeemed only by Christ and who can be redeemed only by Christ. And so what I think happens here is though it may seem like the wicked are prospering, we don't allow them to be our focus. Judgment will begin with us. And I, I want to clarify that even further because if you take that the wrong way, knowing that judgment begins in the household of God and so we don't need to be focusing on everyone else on the outside, I don't want you to take that the wrong way, just plainly. If you take that the wrong way, you can be completely unevangelistic, you can be completely self-centered, you can be completely um, 
distracted from those around you who you might be able to share the gospel with. What I mean here is this. Our focus should not be our faith, but our God. So I'm not, when I say household begins, or judgment begins in the household of God, so don't focus on all the bad people on the outside, but consider your own walk and how you're moving. Philippians says, keep a, I think it's Philippians, no, First Peter, keep a close watch on your life, for by doing so you'll, you'll save yourself and, and the hearers. This picture of considering how we are moving and, and what God is, how God might be disciplining us in hard circumstances, as opposed to, well, God, what about that guy? God, what about that guy? God, what about that? God, what about this situation? So I'm saying what we need to be doing is focusing not on our faith necessarily, but our God. And um, Piper's, I, f- I found him to be far more eloquent than, than I is. And, and he says, um, He said, faith is sustained by looking at Christ, crucified and risen, not turning from Christ to analyze our faith. I'll say that again. Faith is sustained by looking at Christ, crucified and risen, not turning from Christ to analyze our faith. Paradoxically, if we would experience the joy of faith, we must not focus much on it. We must focus on the greatness of our Savior. And so as we anticipate the coming of our King, who will judge every single person What we see here is that it is good to remember that judgment will begin with the household of God. So we will focus on our Savior. We will focus on our King. And I think a proper focus on our Savior will help us to speak when we have opportunity to others in an evangelistic manner, to to share the gospel when we have opportunity. I think a real good focus on our Savior will help us to persevere and to put sin to death and to not dabble with sin. And I think a good focus on our Savior uh, will help us to... um, to not be selfishly inward focused. I think if you take your, your eyes off of, our, off of your Savior and focus just on the, your own faith, sometimes we can be very, very self-centered. And I think that there's a balance here that is um, found only in focusing on the greatness of, of Jesus. In considering the dynamic between judgment and discipline, we learn that God disciplines us because of the unshakable reality of the coming judgment. God disciplines his children because judgment is a reality. Judgment is an inevitability. There's no one who will escape judgment. So he disciplines those whom he loves. And in light of this, I, I, I want to ask, what are some means that God uses to discipline his children? He gives us a conscience. Yeah, the fact that you are bothered at all by your sin is a massive gift from the Lord, and it's his discipline because he loves you. What else? What are other means that God might discipline his children? The Bible, absolutely. Breathed out by God, profitable reproof and correction that we may be trained in righteousness, equipped for any good work. Yeah, I, I one, one time I prayed if I, that I could walk by sight, and it wasn't that long ago, so if that frightened you, I'm sorry. But there was some really confusing 
seemingly ridiculous stuff going on. And I was like, God, the inscrutability and the mystery is driving me crazy. Can I please walk by sight in at least these three issues? It's, it seemed like a sound prayer at the time. And he allowed me to for about two weeks. And it was the most miserable two weeks of my life. It was terrifying. It was, it was, a, it was him saying, you can't walk by sight because you're not God. It's better to walk by You may think walking by sight would be more joyful, more fulfilling, more helpful, but you're not God, so it's not. So um, let's stick with the walking by faith thing and don't ever pray for that again, which I won't. I won't. I never will again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of just a little spoiler here. When, when I ask what means God uses to discipline his children, I'm hoping that y'all are like brimming in your minds with, with the different ways that God disciplines his children. I've had a very narrow view of this, actually, for a lot of my life, where I thought, really, God disciplines us because there are consequences for our sin. So if I sin, there's consequences, and whatever the consequences are, well, that's how God disciplines us. Bad things happen when you do bad things, kind of a thing. It almost sounds more like karma than, than the gospel. But what I want us to see, and I, I think in light of a lot of what we've seen through the wisdom literature, through what we've seen here in the, in the prophecies is, I think it's okay to broaden that to saying God's discipline is anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner of my life. God's discipline is anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner of my life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's it's not always reactive. We may be reactive in our tendencies, but God's not reactive in his tendencies. That's a great example of where really anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner, where it exposes maybe some aspect of your heart, I see that as God's discipline. And, and that may open, up, open us up to some considerations that are not so comfortable, like calamity, heartache, conviction from the word, sickness, death, loss, accountability. Someone else sins against you. 
that God can use that for his means of discipline. One of the most profoundly bright lights that was shined in one of my dark corners was the result of someone sinning horribly against me. I'm not blaming God for that, but I'm realizing that God can use that as, as discipline, anything that shines a bright light in a dark corner. Turn to Hebrews 12, and then we'll get back to Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, there's a lot of discipline that we could just disregard because we're not aware of how mighty our God is and the, the seemingly insignificant moments that he can work mightily to shine a bright light in a dark corner. Hebrews 12, this, uh, this is helpful to me because it shows us what the aim of God's discipline is as we're talking about the prophecies. Hebrews 12, um, 3 through 11 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so the Hebrews pastor is saying, I want you, if you're possibly going to grow weary or faint-hearted because of the hardship and whatever it is you're facing, it's good for you to stop and consider Christ. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's welcoming you to go ahead and compare your strugglings with the strugglings of Christ. He's saying, go ahead and compare and look at the difference. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons, for what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It is not the Christian thing to do in the middle of a time where you're disciplined to say, this is cool, this is okay, this is flowery, this is not a big deal. Sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes the most honest Christian thing you, do, you can do is say, this is, this is miserable. But I know that God's using it for my holiness, for one. And then it goes on to say, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what I want us to see anytime we talk about discipline and judgment is that the aim of God's discipline that we must not lose sight of is holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it's okay to long for that. I love that righteousness is a peaceful fruit, particularly. Because when you're in the turmoil of heartache or loss or something difficult or something that is causing you to sort of peel back the layers and consider that bright light being shined in the dark corner of your life, it's good to know that maybe somewhere down the road at some point there's peaceful fruit of righteousness, where Christ conforms us to the image of his Son so that we may live in a more righteous manner, in accordance with his will, in holiness, and that the fruit that that bears will be peaceful for us. We've talked about the cause of judgment, the promise of judgment, and the priority of God's judgment. And what we're going to consider in the next few minutes is the herald of judgment. What we're going to consider is the context and the manner of how God's message was proclaimed by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is in the capital city of a nation besieged by a foreign power. God's people have their place. He's in the capital city, and it's surrounded, besieged by a foreign power. And turn to Jeremiah 21, 8 through 10. 
And we're going to move a little bit quickly through this because we've got a lot of reading, but I think we can listen to quick reading without it damaging us. 21, 8 through 10. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, is where, is where it stands, but it says... Um, The, uh, the problem with writing down a, uh, a verse the wrong way in the prophets is, um, is if you write it down wrong, you have very little chance of finding it quickly. So what happened was, um, they're surrounded, and what Jeremiah tells them to do, they're surrounded. And so... They go to Jeremiah, the prophet of God. Jeremiah, what do we do? What do we do? And his response is, God says, surrender. Surrender. If you want to live, surrender to Babylon. Do y'all think there could have been anything less popular that he could have shared at that point? They're concerned about being taken. They're concerned about them and their, themselves as a nation being wiped out. So they go to the one who has the words of God, and they say, hey, what do we do? And he says, if you want to live, surrender. Not very popular. What we see here, remarkably, is how aware Jeremiah is that the message he's called to give is not his own. And he's no stranger to having to share a message that would result in more enemies. I mean, imagine. They're going, saying, God's for us, we're God's people, all this. They're all focused not on themselves and, and their holiness. They're focused on the, 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 um, the, the potential um, trouble caused by outsiders, and, and he says to surrender. And this is something that Jeremiah was acquainted with. Turn to 26, 8 through 15. We'll just hope that's the right verse. Oh, okay. That's good. Right, mark that down and read it. Thirty-eight, seventeen, and twenty-six, um, eight through fifteen. Uh, it says, uh, "In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance, and the desires of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My soul. Oh, <laughs> I just figured out the problem, y'all. <laughs> I quit. I'm out. We're, we're, we're done. I'm in Isaiah." So in 21, 8 through 10, it says, And to this people you shall say, Behold, the Lord says, You are in the way of life or the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against the city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So that's his popular message. Y'all need to surrender if you desire to live at all. And he says it again in 26, 8 through 15. It says, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking to, all, the Lord, uh, to all, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people... Then listen what happens. When, he, when he, he just said what the Lord told him to say to, to the people of Israel. All the, prophet, the priests, the prophets, and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. This is going well. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be a des desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. 
When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. So they're not saying, God has warned us. They're saying, this man prophesies against us. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the words you've heard. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. I mean, this is, he's a dude. Uh, this guy is... is um, he shows deep trust in God. I would ask, just as a point of reflection, does, does the consistency of our proclamation of God's message for this world reveal deep trust in God like that? Or does it reveal timid and limited movement that's more reliant upon ourselves and trying to protecting our, our, our little kingdoms? Because he, I mean, to be clear, I mean, just... Um, who was it that, that wanted to take his life? Everybody. The priests, the prophets, everyone who had any kind of power and all their buddies, everybody wanted to take it. Jeremiah Burroughs, one of my favorite quotes by Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment in the 1600s that is shockingly um, specific in regards to things I struggle with. And he said, um, we should prize duty more highly than to be distracted by every trivial occasion. The authority of the command so overalls his heart that he is willing to spend himself and be spent in discharging it. So as y'all think about the things that distract you from communicating God's word, as you think about the things that would distract you from speaking truth, as you think about the things that would distract you from being bold for the sake of the kingdom and for the forward movement of what God wants in his will, do you prize that opportunity more highly than to be distracted? Do you, are you overawed by the authority of God who has placed upon you a call, who has given you a message? Is your heart overawed or, or are the distractions too consuming? Are we so consumed by a thousand distractions every day that we will willingly set aside what God might have for us just to tend to all these little distractions? All the officials, the priests, the prophets, and all the people were threatening Jeremiah's life. We're not just talking about some easily dismissed village idiot who's saying, Jeremiah is against us. It is the people with power who are saying, Jeremiah is against us. Mark Dever says, this Jeremiah was no man pleaser. He has God's message and he's come to give it to God's people. And he makes it very clear in that interaction in front of all of those who have power. He says, you can do with me what you wish. He, just, he is essentially saying, I trust myself to God. You feel free to kill me, but that's innocent blood you're shedding. For everything I'm bringing you is the truth from God that he told me to bring to you. I mean, th that is a boldness. Would we have such boldness in such an occurrence? At one point, Jeremiah even tells one of the kings, King Zedekiah, that he'll be given over to the Babylonians. So, I mean, picture what it's, how it's playing out for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what do we do? You should probably surrender. That's what God says. 
Okay, King Zedekiah, you're going to be given over to the Babylonians. What's happening in these occurrences is they accuse Jeremiah of conspiring with the Babylonians. That's what they accuse him of. Look at his response. Turn to 37, verse 14. 37, 14. He's imprisoned for conspiring with the Babylonians, which, as we see how this plays out, will just blow your mind. Look at what he says in 14. And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Erijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah. They beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. So that whole, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. If you just do the right thing, nothing bad will ever happen to you, does not quite work out. He's saying exactly what God wanted him to say and the way that God wanted him to say it at the time he was supposed to say it. And they, they charged him for conspiring with the most evil nation that the earth has seen at the time. And then they beat him up, knock him around a little bit, and put him in jail. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, Yeah, there is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. I mean, the gall, the unmitigated gall of Jeremiah here. Yeah, I got a word for you. I've been down here for a while, and you're still going to be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. The same word I had before. And then it says, uh, Jeremiah also said to the king Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? He is shockingly bold. He should encourage us. While I commend you um, to consider Jeremiah's boldness, and while I, I would encourage each of us to speak God's words to others with boldness, I in no way want to suggest that this was easy for Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. We're going to consider this more in Lamentations in a couple weeks. But look at um, 27, 20 verse 7. I want y'all to see his boldness. I want y'all to be encouraged by it. When you have opportunities to share the gospel, I don't want y'all to be timid. I don't want y'all to fear the wrong people or fear the wrong circumstances. But I want us to be clear in that this was in no way easy for Jeremiah. He wasn't just some rock star. He was common and fragile, just like the rest of us. And in 20 verse 7, He says, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I become a laughingstock all day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. This does not sound like a man who is saying, yeah, the word of the Lord's great, and I'm going to keep speaking it clearly because people love to hear it. He's saying it's, 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 it's a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say... I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. Then there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, for I cannot. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. 
Say, all my close friends watching from my fall, perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. It was not easy for Jeremiah. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, I have to speak what God has told me to speak. I'm a prophet. This is my calling as a prophet. i got to speak what God's told me to speak. But when I do, I mean, it's just God's word. Um, the word has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. When I speak the word, for, it becomes a means by which people reproach me and mock me and plot against me. And he says, so if, if I were to say, you know what, I'm just not going to say the word anymore. I'm going to stop talking about what God wants me to talk about. I'm just going to keep it in. He says, it's like a fire in my bones, and it hurts more to keep it in than it would to speak it and be wronged by everyone around me. So it wasn't easy. Jeremiah, one commentator noted, felt divinely compelled to pronounce these terrible threats against his own people. Therefore, many would see him as a traitor. And look what develops in 39. Jeremiah 39. Look at verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Pretty bad dude. People are calling him a traitor. You you told King Zedekiah that he was going to be delivered in their hands. When they're besieging us, you tell us to just surrender. You're a traitor. You're with Babylon. He's like, no, I'm not, but you better listen to God's words. And then look look what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar in 39.11, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through the captain of the guard, saying, take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. How's the case panning out for for old Jeremiah? Special care, even favor, shown to Jeremiah by the conquering dictator. This looks real bad, right? We just got taken over by this pretty wicked nation, and the dictator leader just said to Jeremiah, pay him special care. Make sure he has a fluffy pillow before he goes to bed. Choice wine, whatever. Do as he tells you to do. And this is where it's good to remember that while God's judgment will begin with his people, it's limited to nobody. In verses 50 and 51, in chapters 50 and 51, God turns his eyes onto Babylon. And if you begin with the chapter headings of 42 and you work your way to 50, you see a pattern of eastward judgment. You see that Jeremiah has taken Egypt, there's judgment for idolatry. The message to Baruch, which we'll talk about, there's judgment on Egypt, there's judgment on the Philistines, there's judgment on Moab, there's judgment on Ammon, there's judgment on Edom, judgment on Damascus, judgment on Kedar and Hazor, judgment on Elam, and then finally we get to 50, and God sets his eyes on Babylon. I want you all to marvel with me in our closing few minutes, God's judgment on Babylon, 50 verse 6. If you thought, ah, the wicked are prospering once again, And God's people aren't. 56 says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them, my people, have devoured them. And their enemies have said, We're not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord. Their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. So what Jeremiah is proclaiming, the words of the Lord, he's saying to them, um, God is saying, Uh, My people were led astray, and when they were led astray, you devoured them, Babylon. And Babylon is saying, yeah, they abandoned their God. We can devour whoever we want. 
And then he goes on in 22, verse 22, he says, The noise of battle is in the land and great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth is cut down and broken. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. I set a snare for you. You were taken, O Babylon, and you did not know it. You were found and caught because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from every quarter. Open her granaries. Pile her up like heaps of grain and devote her to destruction. Let nothing be left of her. Kill all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of punishment. Look at 51.25. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the crags, make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you from a corner, no stone for the foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Set up a standard on the earth. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, many Ashkenaz. No one was worried about them about 10 minutes ago, and now they're going to wipe out Babylon. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. Prepare the nations for war against her, the king of the Medes, with her governors and deputies, every land under their dominion. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purposes against Babylon. Stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant, and then look at 51:59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded, Sariah the son of Neriah, son of all these people, in the fourth year of his reign, Sariah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words. So all these things that we've already studied are things that would be read at a later time that Jeremiah has spoken with clarity. O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, that they should become exhausted. The nation that once looked so magnificent and majestic and mighty turned out to be a pawn in God's plan to humble his own people. Everything the Babylonians accomplished was accomplished at God's behest, at his pleasure, for his purposes. And apart from God, Babylon could do nothing. They were mere tools in his mighty hand. What I want us to consider, and we're going to consider a little bit more of Jeremiah in our Lamentations study, is that in looking closely at the life of the prophets, I become challenged and encouraged by their view of God's presence and power in human affairs. It's easy to see the bad things that are happening and just think, man, I don't know what's going on here. Does God have a purpose? It's easy to lose sight of God when things are troubling and hard and, and disconcerting. But the prophets were keenly aware of God's power and God's presence and God's movement over what seemed like secular human affairs. Jeremiah was often referred to as the weeping prophet because of the heartache of God's judgment on his people. He got to see his people, his fellow brothers and sisters, be broken, conquered, and disciplined by wicked nations. Yet, Jeremiah, like the other prophets, are keenly aware of how these powerful nations and their movements are used by God as a master craftsman. And so my hope for us is that we would grow in our unwavering trust of God, even in circumstances that seem dire 
and even counter to his promises. It's good for us to be able to consider these prophecies and to zoom out, consider what actually happened to Egypt, what actually happened to Assyria, what actually happened to Babylon. And my hope is that, I mean, there, there are, there's wickedness. I mean, we, we, we call wickedness terrorism a lot. I mean, there's people who want to see Christians die. There's people who want to see people suffer. There's people who want to inflict pain on others. And that's very present in our world. And, and I would say it's, it's possibly it's getting worse right now, not better is what it might look like. But in those moments, I want us to be able to reflect on what's happened here and see that God is completely worthy of our trust. You don't have to fully understand God to be able to trust him. It, was, it wasn't even possible for Jeremiah to fully understand God, and he was proclaiming his message. So this isn't, that's not a check your brain at the door thing. It's a deep, deep, resounding trust because you've spent time considering your Savior and you know what he has done, and you know what his plan is, and you've seen his promises, and you know that he fulfills all of his promises. And so even when it seems like things are happening counter to his promises, you can rely on him. It was okay for Israel, even when they were surrounded and besieged by Babylon. Even though Jeremiah didn't fully get it, God was completely trustworthy. When we talk through Lamentations here in a couple weeks, um, we're, we're going to consider this uh, a little bit more. And, and um, consider how we can lament and how we can grieve, even when God is completely trustworthy, but maybe we, we, don't, we don't know how, we don't know what he's doing. Um, next week, uh, Morris is going to be teaching uh, a standalone deal from Matthew 18, so I encourage you to make that a priority and be here, and, um, and uh, it'll, it'll be a, an encouraging and edifying time, no doubt. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for never abandoning your people, even when your people abandon you. And we thank you, Lord, for loving us effectually. I pray that we would desire to be changed by you and the love you have for us and that we would seek your glory in all things and that we would trust you even when it may not make perfect sense to us. Help us to see that as very, very wise. Pray these things in Jesus' name.